are listening to Ideas on Trapped with Toby Lawson. Welcome to another episode of the Ideas on Trap podcast. And today's episode, we continue my conversation with partner and chief economist of PwC West Africa, Andrew Nevin. In the previous discussion, we covered the so-called mega trends, that is the big changes that humanity, policymakers, all of us should be paying attention to, like population growth, climate change, etc. On today's episode, I dive a little deeper into Andrew's personal views on a bunch of other things, like the contrasting approaches to growth and development by India and China and the lessons contained therein for Nigeria. We also talk about some parts of his personal life. Uh, This was generally a laid-back and fun episode and I do hope you enjoy it. Keep your feedbacks coming and if you haven't already, subscribe to the show. I want to get your thoughts on general economic development trends. I mean, we've seen the rise of East Asia in the last 30 years, led by Taiwan, Korea, and much later China. And I want to really know what you think, how some of these countries, given that you've lived and worked in China, particularly, and also India, how their development experience compared to your work in Africa and the Africa economic experience and some of the differences and what we can learn. So one thing I first want to point out is a lot of these countries rose on the back of heavy industrialization and manufacturing. But it seems that in Africa, we may struggle with that because of some structural challenges fiscal and infrastructural challenges. What do you think Africa can learn from the East Asian experience and how can we forge our own development path? Yeah, I think those are good questions. And let me start out by saying that um, you're exactly right. Africa's gonna have its unique development path. And certainly Nigeria's gonna have within Africa its unique development path. So I think when we study these other economies, we should be taking it as instructive and taking away what's important for African Nigerian development, but we're not adopting someone else's model wholesale. So with that as background, let me comment first on China. So, I mean, I went to China the first time in 1983. It, of course, was really not open at the time. It had not one single private car in the country. I mean, there were a few vehicles owned by the government, government officials, but there was not a single private car. And I really had a chance to kind of witness the development. I lived there for 10 years from 1998 to 2008 and could speak the language when I was there. So it was an extraordinary experience. And of course, what China accomplished in an economic sense was extraordinary. But remember what its starting point it was. I mean, it had been kind of a major global economic power or the major global economic power perhaps 500 years ago before the Renaissance in the West. Um, It had a highly centralized bureaucracy, sort of royal system, emperor of China system. And then, of course, following the Qing dynasty, which fell, I mean, it kind of retreated into itself. And so for the 40 years leading up to the economic renaissance, it was essentially a closed society. It's very ethnically homogeneous. 
run from a very kind of top-down hierarchical system. And when you had the change in the leadership with Deng Xiaoping coming, you know, he could harness that for kind of economic growth, taking it step by step by step. So slowly relaxing certain controls, but keeping others, but always having this kind of centralized direction on it. So I think that is instructive because it shows that a country doesn't have to stay poor forever and every country can potentially be wealthy. But it's been extraordinary. And I think it also shows the power of having some strategic thinking at the center. So if you really look at what's kind of propelled China, you had you know some very good leaders in an economic sense on that. I also think it's a testament to the power of education and science because that was always at the forefront of the Chinese strategy. I can't remember the exact statistics, but if 80% or 70% of the lawmakers in the U.S. Senate and Congress are lawyers, 70 or 80% of the lawmakers in the Chinese Politburo are, um, are scientists on that. So I think that's, those are some lessons we can take away. But it's not really a model for Africa for a few reasons. I mean, to begin with, as I said, it's a kind of very top-down hierarchical society. I don't think that's really what we see in Africa with 54 nations and Nigeria, cacophony of voices on that. I don't think we're going to have that kind of totalitarian system of control that kind of leads to economic development on that. So let me talk a little bit about India. I'm very connected to India. I've been there many, many times. My wife is of Indian origin, so it's family is, is there. I think India, again, was sort of later to the economic revival, later by a few decades. I mean, in grand scheme of time, it isn't really very much. Of course, India was also the wealthiest country in the world. The Indus Valley, maybe four or 500 years ago, the highest GDP per capita before the Industrial Revolution in Europe. So it's also been used to being a very wealthy country. And I think it has many more lessons for Africa. I mean, it's a big, chaotic, messy democracy as we, you know, having some of the same challenges in Africa. I mean, democracy is not perfect anywhere, of course. It has cleavages along religious lines. It has some areas of India that are relatively wealthy, some areas of India that are relatively poor. You have uh, big topographical differences in there, tribal differences. You have the caste system. So a lot of complexity in that, but you have seen from an economic viewpoint a lot of moves forward since the, the 90s in India. And I particularly cite that if you, if you go back to what, in my view, really propelled India, it was the business processing outsourcing revolution, BPO, so coding for the U.S. and, and Europe, uh, call centers. And we're starting to see that certainly in Nigeria and I believe all over Africa as well. So I think that if you're looking for closer model to African development, I think that ultimately India is probably a better place to look. And then also in terms of kind of economic partnerships, I mean, India's got 1.4 billion people. I think it's going to 1.6 billion people. Africa's going to about 2 billion people. So not too distant future, Africa and India together will have about half the world's people as the population stabilizes. So I think there's a lot of reasons for Africa and India to kind of get together to learn from each other. Specifically, Andrew, I want us to look at India and China. I know you've mentioned in some of our previous conversations that India provides a closer model to what you think countries like Nigeria with a greater degree of heterogeneity should aim for. But critics of the India model, if there's anything like that, would say that India compares less favorable to China economically because there was an emphasis on services 
and less so on manufacturing, lower skill, labor intensive manufacturing that will employ lots of people. You know, there's also the issue of the industrialization in Africa or some parts of the developing world and how this is all nested within the broader debate in development economics. I know you don't call yourself a development economics. So like state-led development versus the Washington consensus, economic liberalization or protectionist policies and all of those differences. What really matters in terms of growth and development? Because in a lot of these debates, they may not be relevant to the average guy who just wants to make a living, get a job, have a quality life, but they sure influence policymakers, you know. So what exactly is missing from some of these debates as someone who has experienced different contexts? Well, I think to begin with, we have to remember that this GDP growth is not an end in itself. I mean, what is the purpose of GDP growth, right? What we really want is not GDP, which is kind of an abstract number that I've argued elsewhere is really not possible to measure in a meaningful way. What we really want is people's lives to be good, to have a high level of well-being, perhaps a high level of happiness. So we need to have some thinking about that. And the reason I say that is if we look in the Indian context, for example, I mean, on headline numbers, yeah, you might say China has a higher GDP than India. But if you look a little deeper on that, it's not clear that Chinese people are better off than Indian people. And let me give you an example. So you take a Kerala. So Kerala is the southernmost state in India on the west side. It's about 30 million people. It's a communist state. It elects a communist government. But yet, if you go to Kerala, everyone eats in Kerala. There's no hunger. Uh, recently, we had a death in the family, and the tradition of the Hindu religion is in the death, you make food available for poor people. Well, in Kerala, there aren't any poor people to come partake of that food anymore because it's doing you know, relatively uh, well. Life expectancy in Kerala, I believe, is higher than the United States. They've coped with COVID extremely well. And so I think that what the Kerala situation illustrates is let's get away from this kind of blind obedience to GDP and ask whose lives are doing relatively well. And I think in India... Certainly, you have some parts of India that are really struggling. We have many parts of the country where, you know, many, many people are doing well. They have fulfilling lives. They have work. They have family. They have hobbies, interests, religions big in India on that. And I think, uh, you know, if I had to compare, to be honest, not here to be critical of China, but when I look at the quality of life of Chinese, you know, very different model. As I said, very kind of autocratic. So I don't think we should be using necessarily GDP as a metric. But then in terms of, though, you know, India is now getting into this manufacturing game and not just low end manufacturing, quite end manufacturing, but they're doing it now 20, 25 years after they started some economic growth. They started with the BPO services built around Bangalore. Now, one of the reasons they started was they had educated people, but they didn't have a real good infrastructure for physical manufacturing. Well, I think certainly for a lot of Africa and very certainly for Nigeria. That's where we are today. And I've been arguing for maybe six or nine months now that we should really be focused on exporting services because we can do that today. We don't have to worry about the Apafa port. We don't have to worry about the lack of infrastructure to move things around the country, importing some goods through Apafa, exporting the manufactured goods. It's not simple. So I don't see us being competitive in the medium term, five to seven years in manufacturing. So let's focus on what we are good at, which is services. Now, services embodies a lot of different things, but a lot of them are very high end. So you have 
companies in Nigeria that are now starting to do these business process services. I always cite the example of Amal Hassan, of course, Outsource Global, who has a thousand employees. So I think our path is going to be even more heavy in exporting services because we have some other things that we're exporting that uh, certainly Nigeria and I hope all of Africa are very strong in. So it's uh, obviously Nollywood, the music, the fashion are all things that the world wants out of Africa. And within Africa, we're already seeing Nigeria exporting financial services with companies like Access Bank, UBA, Flutterwave, InterSwitch. So I do think that we should be going more the service route. And just remember, on a global scale, I think 70 percent of GDP is services. So we always tend to think, and I think the Nigerian government has tended to think for a while, export means physical goods. But I think we need to move beyond that mindset. And the other part of it, of course, is that COVID-19 has really highlighted you know, how many different things can be done remotely. So maybe a year ago, we didn't believe it, but now people understand it. So there's even more opportunities for Africans to participate in global value chains without necessarily having to leave, leave Africa. You know, to give one very good example, animation. So the gaming industry is bigger than the movie industry. It's just enormous. There's so many young people that spend time and resources on gaming. It gets more sophisticated all the time. It needs an enormous number of animators. So, you know, I think that's going to be one of Nigeria's biggest industries in the next few years. So in all of these ways, I think our path looks more like India's path and looks like um, China's path. And to be honest, the other thing about China's I mean, as I said, I'm not here to be critical, but they, you know, one major mistake they made with this top-down GDP at all costs objective is it took a terrible toll on the natural environment. You might have seen news recently of how smoggy Beijing is. I mean, it was a problem when I lived there. It was just horrible. The rivers are polluted. They catch on fire. It's been a real problem for them, and that can't be the right development path for Nigeria. And of course, I remember the central bank governor, Sanusi, visited China, and that was the one thing his counterparts there told him. As I said, look, you know, we believed we could grow the economy and then clean it up later, but that's not the case. Our path needs to make sure we're thinking about the environment and the planet as we develop sustainable paths to prosperity. You have to remember that when China embarked in 1979 and its opening up, it had been closed. So people didn't have contacts with other countries. They weren't integrated into global systems. They didn't speak the language. So, you know, you had a slow process. You couldn't offer, for example, these business processing, outsourcing services. You didn't speak the language, right? So they had a very slow opening process of getting into manufacturing and being the manufacturing hub for the world. We're in a very different place. I mean, we have this huge diaspora, Nigerians all over the world, highly interconnected into the world. We already have an economy in Nigeria that imports and in Africa as a whole, imports and exports a lot. I and mean, of course, you know, that's caused a lot of friction because of some of the policies of the CBN and the federal government to try to you know, control these flows. But I mean, I think we should take as our starting point that Nigeria and Africa are highly connected to the rest of the world. So any economic strategy has to take account of that. And that's also to some extent true of India. They were quite close to the world in the 50s and 60s. Their major ally in geopolitical sense was actually the USSR. They were not you know, big allies at that time of the United States. So they were kind of coming from that same position, whereas the starting point for Africa is actually more highly integrated into the world than either of those two places when they started down their path in the last few decades. You've had this beef with GDP for a while, and I'm very much intrigued by your argument. So I want to ask, what do you think would be a better measure other than GDP? And how would you react to arguments or evidence that most other measures of well-being correlate with income? 
Well, I mean, they correlate to some extent with income. But for example, Costa Rica has a GDP per capita that's about one fifth of the United States, but its life expectancy is higher, as an example. I think Estonia or Lithuania has one third of the U.S. GDP, but its education system is better um, on that. I mean, when you have the World Happiness Day, some surprising countries pop up where they have much better results than you might think by the, the GDP. Well, but the basic, isn't that because the U.S. has a bigger population? I mean, just saying. No, it's just because they don't turn their GDP into well-being. I mean, you look at life expectancy going down, opioid crisis, suicides, loneliness. But the basic argument I would make is much simpler is, I mean, it may be true GDP is correlated with well-being, but GDP isn't what we care about. What we care about is well-being. So why don't we measure well-being? And that's what we're actually focused on improving. Now, obviously, any society needs to obey the laws of economics. There's got to be some you know, production in the society to create well-being. But GDP isn't the objective. The objective is well-being in some sense of people or the objective is well-being of people and the planet. You know, I think it forces us to think pretty carefully about what the economy is for and what sort of life we're trying to make for our citizens, whether it's Nigeria or Canada or India or China. And that'll lead you ultimately to better public policy. But GDP cannot be the objective of the economy. If you said to someone, you know, what's the purpose of the economy? It cannot be to maximize GDP. But by putting it so front and center, in effect, that's what happens. And people celebrate. I mean, if Britain grows 1.8% instead of 1.6% as predicted, the markets move on that. It just doesn't make any sense to me. But I think that we're we're well underway to this transformation moving beyond GDP. There's so much activity going on in the last 20 years. As we've seen, GDP doesn't correlate that well with human well-being. So, you know, I think we're getting there, but we still have some way to go. But I think it's particularly important for Nigeria because, you know, we had this period 2010 to 2014. We had strong GDP growth. I'm not sure we had much reduction in poverty, which is obviously you know more critical than GDP. I think the growth was very uneven with the richer getting wealthier. I think a lot of the growth is people, you know, know we didn't reinvest it into education and healthcare. So let's measure what really matters. And I think ultimately we'll make better decisions. But if you stand back for it, if I ask you the following question, do you really think that the way we organize the world in 200 years will look like today? You know, I just don't believe it will. I think we're kind of moving to a more nuanced uh, view of the way society should work. So let me give you a simple example. I mean, in Canada, we've had you know, 30 years, we've had reasonable GDP growth by global standards. We have a high GDP by global standards. We do pretty well by global standards. But yet the connections between people are going down. Loneliness has increased uh, dramatically. Now, if I was the prime minister of Canada, you know, I wouldn't stand up and celebrate that our GDP increased while simultaneously our people are lonelier and are lonelier. That to me is a catastrophe. So the whole point and the reason I have spent so much time in the last decade working on this GDP lens or to get away from the GDP lens is because it just leads us to not focus on what really matters to people. You set the stage for what was going to be my next question. Now, if we abandon GDP, don't you think that it's a bit of a conceptual confusion, especially if we have no clear measures of well-being, for policymakers to just define development down and not really go with growth policies, but instead substitute them for some of the social intervention programs that we are seeing in Nigeria. I mean, in Nigeria, 
uh, with all due respect, the government has been lifting the same 100 million people out of poverty in the last five years, and it keeps getting worse because they keep prioritizing policies like trader money and all these pesky intervention programs over even simple macroeconomic stability. So how do you think this would work to achieve a more robust measure of what you're talking about? Well, I don't think certainly the Nigerian context has been a really robust commitment to having a different sort of measure. I mean, we keep endlessly repeating the 100 million number that President Fahari wants to lift out of absolute poverty, and that's a very critical, laudable goal, and I commend the federal government for doing that. Um, but what we haven't defined in Nigeria is... They, they haven't say, done that. <laughs> well, go on, well, sorry. Haven't, no, they haven't lifted the people out of poverty. They haven't even defined the four or five, you know, critical metrics. I mean, I've talked a lot about the sustainable development goals for the UN. I think it's a great language for understanding these issues. Um, I think the way that the sustainable development goals are used best is if you choose few of them, four or five of them to focus on, and then you have an independent group measure them. So if you think, for example, UK, United Kingdom context, Office of National Statistics. So you could imagine having an independent, like the Nigerian Bureau of Statistics under Dr. Kali is very independent, very well run. And then you could say, we're going to measure these four or five things, and that's going to be what we focus on. You know, One would be around absolute poverty, two would be around something to do with education, three would be something to do with health and longevity, four would be something to do with work, five would be something to do with the environment, for example. But, you know, we haven't gone to that trouble. And, you know, the world is, we're not alone in this in Nigeria or Africa. I mean, the world in this transition out of the GDP lens, I mean, what a great world where all you have to measure is GDP. If GDP does well, you know, your country's doing well. But now we're finding out that's not true. So we've got to do something that's more related to people actually doing well. And yeah, we're in this transition phase where it's hard work to figure out exactly what that is. And I think that Nigeria hasn't really done the work. So we do talk about the SDGs and I'll pay tribute to the you know, the incredible senior special assistant on the SDGs. Of course, she was the deputy governor of Lagos State before. In Lagos, we have Shalafa Hammond, who's brilliant young part of um, His Excellency Samuel Olu's administration. So, you know, we're moving in that direction. But you're right, we haven't come out with four or five measures on that. But I mean, the fact that we don't have those measures doesn't mean we should go back to GDP. GDP was already failing us. We just haven't got to the next place to think about if our country or our planet is doing well. I want to ask you a personal question. In some of the countries that you have worked, do you get frustrated with policymakers sometimes? That is when your advice is ignored and sometimes some common sense policies are being abandoned for complicated, confused alternatives. Do you get frustrated? And I know it's a very delicate diplomatic relationship and you can't really give so much away, but how do you vent some of your personal frustrations? Well, I mean, I get frustrated every every day. It is very frustrating, but not because other countries haven't listened to my advice, because, of course, I've always been in the private sector. The only country I've ever really had a public role in sort of economic policy is actually Nigeria. When I lived in China, I was in the public sector, ran some companies. I was in Canada. I did private equity investment. I was in the UK with PricewaterhouseCoopers. I was with France. I was with McKinsey. And I wasn't really doing much public sector work, really private sector work. But I am frustrated as a Canadian. I mean, I worked for a decade on the concept of flourishing being the measure. So people flourishing in Canada... And it's to us, myself and my co-author, it's obvious. But I mean, I spent some time when I was on lockdown 
sorry, in the beginning of COVID, I was in Canada for six months and interacting with Canadian policymakers. And as I said, I mean, we are slowly moving off the GDP lens, but it's frustrating for me. I mean, I cited a little earlier the issue of loneliness. So the way I look at things is I always imagine I was the prime minister of Canada. What would keep me up at night? Well, what wouldn't keep me up at night is whether GDP grew 1.1 or 1.8%. What would keep me up at night are, you know, are Canadians lonely? Are they connected? Are they overstressed about money? Are they able to find decent work. And obviously, the economy is a part of all that, but it's not the purpose. The purpose are the things I just described. So that is very frustrating. And when I'm in the UK, as I have been for the last few months, you know, immensely frustrated here because you really have the sense under the Tory government that they don't really care about the well-being of people. So, I mean, there's all this grandiose talk with Brexit, but, you know, it's there's many average people being harmed by it. You know, we've had a very difficult COVID here for many of the people, average people in Britain, of course, there was the scandal recently where we're supposed to celebrate the health service, but uh, the administration chose to give them a 1% pay rise in these extraordinary circumstances. So I am frustrated. But I have to say I'm less frustrated in Nigeria because if you just stay for a moment with the moving beyond GDP issue, I mean, Nigerians really get it. I mean, as I, I just cited, of course, the senior special assistant to President Buhari and special assistant to His Excellency Sanwa Olo. And you know, the fact that already you can think beyond GDP, I really am heartened. I mean, the creativity of the Nigerian, the public sector in Nigeria, and I know we're all frustrated, but, but many of the things that I see them trying to do, they're really kind of on the creative edge, you know, you know create entire ecosystems, connect up, not this Washington consensus that you talked about that said, if, if we just let market forces run amok, things will turn out well. They're really thoughtful about that. And some some really great public servants that I've had the privilege of knowing over the last few years. I was very sad. I don't know if you saw the passing of Engineer Chidi, who was the head of the ICRC, which is very sad news for me. So this is the yeah. agency that's in charge of concessioning. I mean, he was a brilliant public service, really trying to do some big things. And I know there's lots of forces against these very good people. Like uh, I always cite Dr. Chamoke over at Pebeck. Yuande Saduko. So you go back to this kind of leapfrogging concept, but I see more creativity in the Nigerian public sector at both the Nigerian level and at the state level. I was on the phone the other day to the diaspora head of one of the states, and you know they're just doing amazing things uh, on that. So it gives me a lot of confidence in that. So while I'm frustrated about Canada, I'm frustrated about the United Kingdom, I'm frustrated about Nigeria. Certainly the Nigerian context have a lot of faith. Clearly, you are a lot more optimistic on Nigeria than I am, so I'm going to conclude you know something I don't. Well, I just, I mean, you know, if we want to be a little bit biblical about it here on Easter Sunday, I mean, this is a titanic battle between good and evil, right? Um, every, every, every day in Nigeria. But I see kind of 60 to 70 percent good and uh only 30 to 40% or maybe 30% evil. So I think ultimately, the, you know, and I think see so many talented young Nigerians doing amazing things, including, you know, yourself, Aronke. And so it's just, I mean, I just feel like that force is just gathering momentum. And to the extent that technology allows people to kind of bind together to be able to solve these problems, it's, it's coming. Yeah, but it is frustrating. I hope I live long enough. I mean, at my age, I'm not sure I'll be here, but I just, I want to see it because the energy level, the creativity. So we to give you an example, so we, um, you know, I'm involved in uh, hackathons with Africa Hacks, you know, a couple of amazing young 
Africans, Uche from Nigeria, and uh, Dr. Dingongi, if I have it right, is from the Cameroon. So that's great to see because you have a man and a woman and you have French, Africa, Anglo-Africa combining to create this amazing thing. But we've just completed a hackathon or a hack for Financial Center for Sustainability Lagos, which is a group founded by uh, Coco, who's the MD or the CEO of FMDQ, which is really focused on trying to get more, you know, how to build up the sustainable finance system in Nigeria. So it was a hackathon for young Nigerians or young Africans focused on using technology to solve you know, the sustainability issues in conjunction between the um, Financial Center for Sustainability Lagos and the Nigerian Climate Innovation Center, which is you know, another amazing organization sponsored by Access Bank. And the vice president himself, His Excellency Professor Dr. Yemi Osimbajo, uh, GCON, took 15 minutes of his time to give the keynote address to that, which I just said, you know, you've got sustainability, technology, young Nigerians, young Africans, the vice president coming all in to create this energy. So, I mean, as I said before, I'm actually very heartened in Nigeria. We can do these sorts of things. I can't see in Canada the deputy prime minister taking time out of her day to do something like that to kind of get that energy from young Canadians. You ask why I'm optimistic because I see these pockets all over the country in every part, every you know, every state that I interact with. So, you know, eventually those forces of good, I pray to God, are going to overcome the forces of evil that we all understand. So. Amen. And I sincerely pray that you do live long enough I mean, you're a very good friend of the house, and I wish you nothing but the best. Considering that your life expectancy is even higher than the national average. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, moving on, Andrew, uh, let's talk about the future of work. I read about PwC UK, not Nigeria, adopting a more flexible work hour and arrangement going forward. Although some other companies, Goldman Sachs, have resorted back to their old ways. But generally, given what we have experienced with the pandemic, the lockdown and everything, how do you see this shaping up? Is remote work finally here to stay? And what are the implications for productivity, both firm and aggregate wise? Yeah, so I think the picture that's emerging for me, at least, is the blended model. I mean, I think all the surveys of people say the same thing, which is there are kind of really big advantages to working from home. I mean, I've been more productive in the last year than I've ever been in terms of in the times to the point it's just very tiring because you do so many things in a day and these Zoom calls and you, you know, don't spend time getting from place to place A to B. One thing that I particularly like, to, for example, is when we do these seminars, they start on time, they finish on time. I mean, before when I was giving a 15-minute speech, you know, I would come early to the venue in case there was traffic, there would be all sorts of protocols. I'd give my speech, I'd stay for a few other speeches because you want to you know, listen to a few others, but then there'd be photographers. And you give a 15-minute speech and it takes you half a day. Now we have these events and you can... And I'm sure everyone's doing it, I'm not telling any secrets, but, you know, for part of the event, I mean, you do your own part of the event, but part of it, I leave it on, I'm listening, I'm doing some other work. So I find it highly productive and I can interact with so many more people in the day. So I think that that part of it, you know, we need to keep. At the same time, we have some disadvantages and a couple I'll highlight. I mean, one is just people do like to see people sometimes. And most people in the surveys, I think, say the same thing. And I am right there with them is they would like to go to the office twice a week. You know, two to three times a week. And when they go to the office, they want to go and specifically have the events that they're interacting with people. So I think we'll end up with coming back to that happy medium. But still, a lot of the time, 
you know, you can work from your home. The second part of it is I think that we're going to struggle increasingly because when the lockdown came, so I had my existing teams with existing clients and everyone sort of knew each other so could continue in this remote working way. But if you're bringing someone new on onto a team or someone out of university, you need to socialize them how to work in a professional setting, socialize them around the way PwC works and our values and the way we do things. That's not so easy remotely. So I think we're going to have to have you know, bring back some physical aspects so we can do that. And then we'll find this happy medium. I think people are ultimately going to be much more productive going to the office twice a week. You know, no one, I don't know anyone that wants to go back to five times a week. So I think ultimately it's a good thing. I think the other thing, though, that will be very beneficial for Africa is that because we have more flexible ways of working remotely, the more and more things will be done remotely, and it's going to be easier for Africans to fit into global value chains. So I, you know, I talked about animation, whereas 10 years ago you would have wanted all the animators together in the same place. Now that can be distributed around the world. The work can be parceled up. So someone in Lagos can get hired as an animator. They can earn foreign exchange for Nigeria and themselves without having to leave Lagos. So I, I do think that we're not going to go back. You know, I appreciate the CEO of Goldman Sachs, who probably lives very close to his office and has a chauffeured limousine or a chauffeured helicopter, <laughs> you know, doesn't mind the small commute to his office. But I mean, for us at PwC, it took us a while to, I mean, one, one thing that is very critical for companies to be able to distinguish who's working and who's not working, to be really blunt about it. So we had some people that were working harder than ever. We had other people that seemed to be taking advantage of the situation of not having that sort of over-the-shoulder oversight. We heard that as well from bank CEOs. I think if people know my clients tend to be in the financial services sector. Um, but by now, people have figured out, you know, the tools are there to know who's working and not working. So in the Lagos context, we found in general, our staff is much happier because, you know, once they've got some bandwidth and if they have enough power where they are, they can do their work and they don't have to. Fight. I mean, our young people were exhausted. You're fighting 90 minutes, two hours to get to work every morning. You're meant to be using your brain power for many hours in the day. How do you do that if you're kind of three or four hours in this very tough commute? So even taking that out twice a week is hugely beneficial for our business. So, I mean, some of the tougher aspects of working from home, in speaking from my experience, the hours are too long and the lockdowns were particularly tough for getting some physical activities. So, but for you, the experience over the last year, how did you cope personally with some of the restrictions and having to work from home all the time? Yeah, so, I mean, it was... Yeah, from a personal viewpoint, I mean, it has ups and downs. We took the kind of emergency evac flight uh, April 6th from Lagos to Toronto, uh, my wife and I. And in fact, I sat beside Akeem Subir, who's very famous. He's, of course, the founder of One Million Teachers, which is an organization I really support. It's uh, the advisory head of it, or the chairman of it, is actually His Royal Highness, Mohamedou Sanusi II. Great organization. So that was the bonus of that 40-hour trip. But um, and we got there. We, we stayed with my brother and his wife for four or five months. You know, I had not been in Canada for that long, really, for over 20 years. So from that viewpoint, it was... Um, you know, it was a real pleasure to be with my brother and his wife. And during some of the lockdown relaxations, I could see some of my kids at various times. But it was very trying. 
And, um, you know, we had our, like everything, you've got to build in your routine and get out of the house and get some exercise. During the summer, last summer, my wife and I were really having a chance to play a lot of tennis, which is what kept our sanity. Uh, the sun stays out late in Canada in the summer. We could sort of barbecue. We then came back to uh, London in October, planning to come back to Lagos quickly. But we left Toronto on October 20th, and that was the day, the sad day that we all remember, which is the Lucky Massacre. So we, you know, we're following the news in the Toronto airport. The plane leaves overnight. So we're getting the news, you know, it was obviously the day was over in Lagos. So we were you know, very distraught about that and arrived in London and just you know, weren't sure where this was all going. So we just decided to sit for a little while in London. And then, of course, COVID came back with a vengeance. So it's bad in Nigeria that in the uk and we just said we're going to sit until until we get the vaccine so um we've now had the first vaccine each we're going to get the second soon and, and be back in nigeria so but it's, it's been up and down i mean the lockdown in the uk has been quite draconian for the last almost four months in fact so that hasn't been much fun but we just try to stay a little bit focused get through the winter get out of the house once a day I've been taking some uh, chess lessons that have helped me cope a, cope a little bit with it. <laughs> think about uh, a retirement hobby, um, you know, check in with families and friends often to see how everyone is coping because everyone's going through these ups or downs and check in with my teams and see how they're doing and, uh, you know, just take it day by day. And then I, I will have to confess on this. I just um, every day is so full at the end of the day. I need a, an alcoholic drink to help me. <laughs> so we... We just, uh, I haven't actually had beer for a long time because I really only like draft beer and the pubs are not open. So we don't drink beer at home, but we do have a mixture of cocktails and wine. So at the end of the day, and then one of the things we've tried to do, my, my wife and her daughter, who we live with, are both exceptional cooks. So we've tried to make sure that we really take pleasure in food and cook something nice every night, take some time to do that. So those have been our mechanisms and everyone's had to find a you know coping mechanism. I also have to say, I think it's just, for me, it's been a difficult period just you know, watching too many people die, some from COVID, obviously, some people are, you know, just are just really surprised and saddened by their death and a few other deaths that have been in my life from a non-COVID situation. So this past year has really been too much death. So it kind of ma makes you reflect on things. Very true. Uh, so looking at you now, a lot of people who are not really familiar with your history, because I read a little bit of your bio, knowing Andrew, the chief economist, head of financial services, doesn't give too much away about you being a nerd, which I know you are. So you're a math graduate, computer science, PhD economics from Harvard. So what books did you read during the lockdown? Oh, okay. I've got a few books here that, yeah, just that I really enjoyed. So I did read uh, Capital in the 21st Century by uh, Professor Piketty, which people talk a lot about, but they don't necessarily read. It's, it's a very dense book, but it's really worthwhile because it goes into kind of the numbers around income inequality, which, you know, is a really important subject. I mean, we can't go on in a world where we have that. I read, uh, so when I was at Harvard, I did my PhD with the very famous Diane Coyle, who's a professor at Cambridge, and I uh, read her book, uh, because we were talking about earlier, GDP, A Brief but Affectionate History, so just, you know, my thinking about Excellent book. So, you know, Diane's a friend of mine, and uh, she's a very good writer, and just you know, really, really good. So another friend of mine that I was at uh, Oxford with is a professor of philosophy, and she just wrote a book about Frank Ramsey. 
Frank Ramsey was an amazing man who died in his 20s, but made contributions to economics and mathematics and philosophy at a very young age. And it's just fascinating. His biography is a fantastic. I, uh, I, I read that. that. That was fantastic as well. Um, so I've also been, because uh, I don't think I read it when it came out, but I, in the past year I've read Poor Economics, which really heartens me to see kind of the way economics is changing and the types of people winning the Nobel Prize are changing. So this is written by Professor Banerjee and Professor DeFlo. And I mean, I have to, I can't even remember if there's another woman that's won the Nobel Prize in economics. But, you know, so that was fantastic. Um, I think Elena Ostrom was the only woman um, DeFlo. And then I read another book. Another friend of mine from Oxford published a book in Canada on equality. But I read it because the subtitle is Justice Flourishing and the Egalitarian Ideal. So it really goes into the connection between equality and flourishing, which is something that I'm very interested in. So, so those are some of the things I've read in the past uh, year during lockdown. Yeah, I also read your PhD thesis, and I wasn't surprised to learn that the great Amartya Sen was your thesis supervisor. How much would you say he influenced your outlook? I think uh, Professor Sen was—he he wasn't my main supervisor, but he was very good to me, and just uh, you know took the time to read the thesis and give comments. And of course, I think my thesis came out—he must have been working on his capabilities work that came out in the early '90s. So it was just a real, a real. Um, yeah, real privilege to know him and that he took the time to do that. So I had uh, two main supervisors who were obviously very famous as well, but not Nobel Prize winners. And then I had Professor Sen, who was a Nobel Prize winner, and then Professor Thomas Schelling, who was also a Nobel Prize winner, who, of course, wrote um, the book on game theory, which is remarkable because if you, you, know, you think about how mathematical economics was, but he basically put game theory on the map without using much mathematics. He could explain things in such a simple, elegant way. So the title of the book was Strategy of Conflict. Uh, you know, it's accessible to anyone. But you think about, we always talk about the prisoner's dilemma. I mean, he was, I don't know if he invented it, but he was really the one that kind of brought that simple concept out in a way. So I was really privileged to know my two main supervisors, plus Professor Sen and Professor Schelling. Yeah, very lucky. So why did you choose to specialize in economics, given your background in math and computer science? Why didn't you want to be the next Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or... Well, I mean, I mean, first off, and back then, people didn't think so much about, you know, it would have been obvious as a computer science graduate, you're thinking about creating a great company. I mean, I always thought I would be in public service, but, uh, and I guess I am now, but um, to be honest, I just felt after mathematics and computer science, I didn't know very much about the world, and I got drawn into economics, and again, it's just so much luck in this, but there was a very famous professor who taught me statistics, Professor Wanaka. And his brother in the same university in Canada where I grew up and attended was a very famous professor of economics. So I said to Professor Wanderkut, I wanted to learn more about the world. I think I want to do some economics. And he basically sent me over to his brother and managed to get me into the economics masters. And that was the transition. But but the need at the time was, was yeah, I'd done all this theoretical things and computer science seemed quite abstract. How did you learn about how the world actually worked? And the logical way was to go study economics. And also, this is a very important question for me. As a child prodigy, I don't want to go into your academic records. What has your experience taught you about the interplay between education, learning, and all those things? I mean, the nuances between natural abilities of a child and the kind of education you get and the, the kind of society you're born into. What has your own personal experience taught you about those things? 
Well, I think, I mean, yeah, I, th I don't know if I'm any different than other children. I mean, children are naturally curious, right? Children want to learn. I was really lucky that I was able to move through the system quickly, just literally through luck, right? But I mean, I think so much of our education system is designed to put people in boxes and to squash their creativity and their energy. I'd like to see an education system that's much more hands-on, that's more experiential, where you learn from each other, because that's sort of natural. I mean, this idea of kids sitting in a in classrooms and rows of seats, that's a, that's a very ineffective way to learn. And I was lucky that I got through it so quickly. I mean, my brother, who's retired now, but was a teacher for 30 years. I mean, he said, look, if you were in the system today, you would just, you would basically be mentally ill, right? Because it's just, at least in Ontario or Canada, I'm talking about, you know, you still have this kind of relatively rigid system of people sitting in, in seats. So, I mean, I'd like to see an education system that's much more active. And also, I mean, I just learned naturally. I enjoyed learning, but I think that it would be useful to teach children at a very young age about their own learning process. So the term we use for this is metacognition. So you know how you learn, right? So people learn in different ways. Some learn in a tactile way, some learn by listening, some learn by reading, some learn from other peers. But understanding how you learn is very critical. But also I think a big part of it too is, I mean, learning to me should be much more you know, practical than it was certainly in my day. I mean, you should kind of be out in the world and people should learn to cook. They should learn the natural world by interacting with it. And I just think that we could do a much better job with that. And, and part of it, too, is also this concept of lifelong learning. Um, people should be learning you know, throughout their, I don't want to even say their career, because you know, people aren't defined by their career. They should, throughout their life, they should be learning new things. So I think it's a very sad day when you stop learning. So I mentioned a little bit before that I... Uh, I've been doing my chess during the lockdown. I have, I mean, I never very, you know, I was not taught proper as a kid. I learned to play chess. It's something I'd like to have as a hobby as I head to retirement. Uh, I now have the most fantastic teacher who teaches me chess. It also shows how the world is moving on. It's all virtual. He, he sits in Berlin. You know, I'm in London. I'll be in Nigeria soon, continue with the lessons. But it's a fantastic thing at my age to be learning something new because it's just humbling, but also exhilarating. And I just think it should be part of everyone's life that they should always be learning something new. Staying with learning for young people out there who may be listening, what intellectual habits would you say has shaped you the most? Yeah, I mean, again, I'll go back to say I kind of got all these happy accidents when I was young and exposed to kind of all these people and ideas. But I think that what has served me the best has been to question the orthodoxy. You know, is this really true? And, you know, obviously one of the big things, as we talked about before, is my interest in GDP as a metric. So I've always been asking, is this really true? You know, you one of the few people in the world that ever read my thesis. But the thesis was all about, you know, we're taught economics, microeconomics under a certain paradigm. Is it really true? Does it make any sense? That particular piece of work, we went from kind of philosophical tradition to kind of examine that. But if you also look at some of the things that I do in Nigeria, a lot of what I say comes out from, is it really true, right? So all this stuff about diaspora, the economic power of the diaspora, that came out because people kept saying we were an oil economy. And I said, well, is that really true? And then I looked at the numbers and the diaspora remittances versus the oil and it turned out, you know, I don't think that that's actually true. So I think if people go deeper or, for example, this issue around we were discussing earlier services manufacturing and the government going on about you know, building up manufacturing and we need to be a manufacturing powerhouse, you know. 
I said the question, is this really true? And maybe I'm wrong, but you know, now I'm playing out the narrative that says we can be a services powerhouse and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. In fact, I think we'll be more prosperous. So the one piece of advice I would give is, I mean, you have to have lots of touch points. You need to read a lot of different things. You need to listen to a lot of different people, but you also need to then question, you know, not believe what you're told. And I, I can tell you, I mean, even you know, the most brilliant professors in the world only know a small point or men in the world, women in the world, only know a small part of the world, right? So, you know, you, even if you're a young person, you can be questioning, is this true? But then you've got to go out and kind of get the fact base. And so how do you distinguish between that? So that's been very helpful for me. And I think that, you know, I try to do this as a student, but then really the McKinsey training helped. I mean, I started my career at McKinsey and they're very rigorous about is something true or not? How do you back it up? You know, how do you, you know, get to get to the bottom of the things? And I just think that that's really, really helpful me throughout my career okay so i mean if you're out there and you're listening get a job at mckinsey finally andrew what are your principles for a good society so you're an economist and i know it's a bit inevitable to talk about economic well-being but beyond that what are your ideas and the principles that you believe makes a good society do you agree with roles for example that we should have social arrangements that favor the least advantaged? That's a very good question. I actually wrote an article on the web arguing that instead of maximizing the minimum income, which is what Rawls says, we should maximize the median income, for example. But I mean, I've spent a decade, uh, my weekend work has been on the concept of uh, flourishing. So this is the idea that objectives of public policy should be to maximize human flourishing. And I've been focused on Canada on that. I have a website. I have a book we hope to bring out soon. Either we'll bring it out ourselves or we'll have a publisher. But it just says the way we should look at public policy is whether Canadians flourish. I'm involved with the flourishing community. So there's a Center for Human Flourishing at Harvard and there's a Center for Character and Values at Oxford and those collaborate for flourishing. And, you know, what's flourishing about it? Why did I choose it or spend so much time on it? To me, flourishing is powerful because it really expresses the fullest idea of what it is to be a human being. It expresses the idea of growth, of resilience, of being healthy, of changing over time, of, of life, of death, every flourishing it conjures up an image and also of connectivity, right? So you can't flourish on your own. I mean, if you think of an ecosystem, a rich ecosystem like uh, you know, forests in Nigeria, like rainforests or rainforests in the Amazon, they flourish because all the species are flourishing together. Now, in terms of the work we're doing to unpack it, we unpack it into a few different pieces. One is human dignity. I mean, the foundation of all this is, you know, all people are equal in human dignity. And then what are the consequences of that? We also unpack it into autonomy. That is, I mean, you know, to be human means being able to make choices for yourself. Now, you're making them in the context you're connected to other people and you're part of a, a community, but you're also autonomous human being is able to make decisions uh, on that. The third part is that community part of what we call connectedness. I mean, you can only flourish if you're connected to other people and really connected to the planet at the end of the day, because we all, all live on the planet. And the fourth element we tie together is resilience. So part of flourishing is your resilience. Things happen. COVID-19 happens. Things happen in your life, in your family, in your job. And it's very critical for human flourishing that people have a measure of resilience. So then we try to build out a whole architecture of explaining you know, why you're making the argument for flourishing and then these sub-elements of flourishing and try to link it to public policy. So that's what we're trying to put is the 
as the framework. Um, now, we focused on Canada because myself and my co-author, Dr. Elizabeth Neal, are Canadians. It seemed like too hard to take on flourishing for the world. We could take on flourishing for Canada. We made a little bit of headway. We'll see about that. I've just, uh, I, I was talking a little bit about the wider flourishing group and, and the center at Harvard. I think we're going to form a public policy working group to try to influence public policy so that when we move off the GDP lens, we're not moving to well-being or happiness. We're actually moving to a, uh, a flourishing lens. So that takes a uh, a lot of my time now. Um, but I, I just want to tie it to one other concept I've got involved in the last few years, and I've talked a bit about in um, the Nigerian context, but I really think it could be powerful. So something called brain capital. So then you ask the question, okay, we want society to have a good life. And I mean, I just expressed it in terms of flourishing, dignity, autonomy, resilience in our context. But you know, how are we to find a good life? What is the basis you know, how do you get to a good life? So I'm involved with another set of people who are really working on this concept of brain capital, which basically says, look, if you have a high level of brain capital, you're probably going to have a pretty good life, right? And what is brain capital? Well, obviously, brain capital are all the knowledge and skills you have. You, know, you need to be able to read. You need to be numerate, critical thinking skills like we talked before. But it's also things like the absence of mental illness. I mean, one thing that COVID-19 has really highlighted for everyone around the world and is much better conversations about mental illness. And I think in Nigeria... It was something that was not discussed very much. Now we discuss it with our people. And obviously you want the absence of depression, the absence of dementia, the absence of schizophrenia, bipolar, all of these things. But you also want kind of positive brain capital. But it's also things like um, metacognition that I mentioned before, emotional EQ, emotional quotient people I'm sure are aware of, self-awareness, mindfulness. Those are elements uh, of it as well. What this group is trying to look at is empirically, you know, how does brain capital fit into ultimate well-being? And we have a few hypotheses. One is if a country has a good brain capital, it'll probably do pretty well. Probably well-being will be high. But two, if you're surrounded by people with high brain capital, it probably increases your brain capital. If you're in a company that has lots of people with high brain capital, you know, you'll probably benefit from that. So that's another thing that I've started to work on more and more in the in the last year connected to my flourishing. But that's ultimately, I'd like to see a society and I'd like to see public policy based on flourishing. But in the Nigerian context, I would really love it if the country came out and said, we're going to focus on brain capital. Because if we maximize brain capital, Nigeria will probably do pretty well. A lot of people might also not know that Aside your work with PwC and in policy circles, you are also one of the biggest local investors in Nigeria in the startup ecosystem. So I would ask you, what should we be watching in the future in terms of the success and development of that sector? Well, I wouldn't. I'm much bigger investors. I have a few startups that I'm involved with, help found, and, and uh, you know, one in fintech, one in solar tech, and I'm looking for some other opportunities. So I'm doing my best to be part of it. But what I would say is, it's critical to look for people that are combining technologies with the physical world and the challenges. So I don't think that someone who builds something just in the virtual world is going to make a difference to Nigeria. But someone that combines like IoT technology with some kind of app-based technology to solve a physical, say, sanitation problem, I think they're going to build something incredible, right? So if you think about sanitation, healthcare, education, those are all physical. You, know, you can't deliver those virtually. They have to be delivered physically. So how do you combine these technologies? So you take, obviously, artificial intelligence. You take general internet connectivity. You take uh, Internet of Things. 
and how do you put them all together to be able to do something that really makes a difference for that? So those are the kinds of companies that I really would like to see young Nigerians focus on. And it's, you know, it's not easy. I mean, we've talked about remote healthcare for a long time, but I really believe there's going to be solutions coming out that kind of solve it. The other thing that I'm very focused on is Africans finding solutions in the local context, right? Because only people in the local context understand all the conditions. So you take something simple in fintech. I mean, USSD is massive, right? Because we tend to think of, you know, everyone in the world has a smartphone, but that's just not the case, right? We still have tens of millions of people in Nigeria that are connected but have a feature phone and not a smartphone. And they need to be able to do financial services. So solutions that also recognize, you know, the range of where Nigeria is at. So I think young Nigerians that embrace that and solve local problems, I think they're going to do amazing things. Final question, Andrew. What is your vision of the future? Are you a techno-optimist? I mean, what science fiction-y things, if I can say that, do you believe will be possible within the history of human existence? Are we going to be a multi-planetary species, uh, anti-aging, cryogenics? I mean, what weird things do you believe about the future? Well, I hope we're multiplanetary. I mean, I just, you know, I'm not going to live long enough to see it. But of all the uh, days in lockdown, the most amazing day we had was we went to see my oldest friend in the world who lives in my hometown. And he is one of Canada's top amateur astronomers. Um, And he took us out to a property that their astronomy club has that has some significant telescopes. And he he is a real expert at this. Uh, And a very dark night, very clear night moonless and we were able to see uh, nebula deep sky objects so deep sky objects are objects within our own galaxy i think maybe 100 million light years which is not comprehensible to a human being but we were seeing objects that were two billion light years we saw andromeda which is the next galaxy over it's just that was the greatest moment of the lockdown for us and it just reminds me i mean i grew up you know great interest in astronomy with him we were very dear friends and I would love for us to be able to kind of explore the universe, but it's not going to happen in my lifetime. I mean, to be honest, I am a little bit of a technological pessimist at the moment. I think we're in a very difficult period. Some technologies that really worry me. I mean, to begin with, we all the social media and the fact social media is kind of based on neuroscience and the science of addiction and these likes. And that's what this is about with Facebook and Instagram, et cetera. And I think it's damaging. I went back and go back before this idea of metacognition. I think we need to teach young people, help them line up against these forces because the technology forces that are there to to make money and to make these uh, multi-billion dollar companies, you know, they're going to continue to exploit the neuroscience, but in a way that doesn't necessarily benefit people. I'm also very worried about AI. If you think about AI, I mean, what's it about? It's creating an algorithm that presents something to you that whoever has developed the algorithm, again, profit-making institution, is presenting it to you for a reason. Um, I mean, the way that pre-internet era, so when I was in the late 70s in university, I mean, I was getting the same information as everyone else in the country. We were, we were watching, there were only four television channels. So you only had four newscasters, which were all the same ones. You were reading the same newspapers. And now that's broken down. And what we're being presented is AI that's chosen black box by someone else. That really worries me. A third thing that really worries me is the surveillance technology. And of course, you know, I mentioned 
before China being a very top-down country on that, and they have perfected the art of kind of social surveillance software, and, and not the only ones. I mean, the United States, you could argue, is in a similar position. So those sorts of things really worry me, and I think we're in a very difficult position to, to work with technology. And then, of course, there are some other technologies like the biological ones and cloning and cryogenics that present really serious ethical issues. Um, and again, I don't think we're equipped as a species quite yet to deal with them. So, I mean, I'm optimistic in the long run, which will be after I'm gone. But in the short term, I'm very worried about some of these technologies. And I think we've got some difficult decades um, to work through and, and just see if, because I mean, remember, it goes a little bit back to the GDP argument. I mean, you know, the purpose of the economy is not to maximize GDP. It's to be good for people, right? The purpose of technology is, I think, sometimes beautiful for its own sake, but in the terms of the applied technology, it presumably is there to make people's lives better. So if it's making people's lives worse in the ways I just described, I think it's something that we really need to have a think about and figure out how to counteract. But in terms of space travel, I mean, oh, I'd love to come back in a thousand years or 10,000 years if we haven't destroyed ourselves and see what actually happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, speaking of social media and some of the threats you highlighted, aren't those just human problems? I'll use the example of Twitter. You're one of the most benign, nicest people. And I still see some of the replies that you get on Twitter. Isn't this just the way we are as humans? And any technology is always going to have a human problem eventually. Well, I, I uh, you know, I, I don't mind getting some robust replies, but I'm more worried about... <laughs> they are not robust, Andrew. Some are downright <laughs> offensive. Some are... <laughs> Some do not even show a grasp of the issues, but still they feel compelled to, I mean, say something insulting, nonetheless. So, oh, well, look, I'm not, I'm not going to worry about it for me. I'm, you know, I'm a big boy, but I'm more worried about the young person, you know, the teenager, cyberbullying, you know, addiction to devices, addiction to the social media. So, and I do think it's a new thing. I mean, it's neuroscience. I mean, the way people are wired up over billions of years of evolution. Uh, then applied in a kind of new context, you know, where you can supercharge the amount of stimulation that goes on. So I think that it does need to be to be thought about. I mean, you take the cyberbullying thing. It's just, I mean, we've all, you're right. We've always had bullying in some sense in adolescence. I'm sure many people have read uh, Lord of the Flies and just you know, this kind of adolescent society that thrives on hierarchy and in a destructive way. Now, Technology, to me, has allowed it to happen in this larger scale, in a more anonymous way, even in a business sense. I mean, our ability to create so many emails. I mean, I think companies are realizing, like I myself, if you go back to when I was studying mathematics in the late 70s, and I was a computer science person, but if I was going to do computer science, I wasn't doing it at my home. I was going to the university because you had to physically be in the, in the lab, right? I mean, there was no internet. But in mathematics, I could sit at my home get up at 7.30, have a cup of coffee. Between 8 and 11, I could have three hours of uninterrupted concentration to do my math problems. You know, every 15 minutes, stop for one minute or something, have a couple of cups of coffee. The telephone might ring. That would be the only interruption. I mean, it was, of course, a fixed telephone. It was a, a rotary dial. There was no, nothing came up that told you who was calling. You, you know, you'd answer it and see what was going on. That was your only interruption. And you could really accomplish a lot in terms of deep thinking. When I was at Oxford, I didn't even have a telephone at Oxford, right? So you just sort of read your books and did your writing. And you reached this stage of real concentration. Now, 
you know, I try to do my best writing, but it's hard to go 20 minutes without kind of taking a break and getting immersed in a device or someone's WhatsApp or a tweet. And so I think in a sense, we've lost something. And, you know, I worry, I, I don't know all the science, but I suspect that we're finding out that uh, a lot of young people's ability to concentrate or problem solve is being diminished. And I think that should be a real worry for us. Mm-hmm. So much to think about. Thank you very much, Andrew. It's been fantastic doing this with you. Thank you so much, Toby. Really enjoyed it. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to the show on any of your favorite podcast vendors. That may be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or any of the rest. Don't forget to rate us on your platform. It helps others find the show. Or you can just listen or download on our website, www.ideasuntrapped.com.